Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's uh, Panel Beater here with um, my dear, dear colleagues, Dr. Sharma and Dr. Neo. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning to you. It's nice to be called dear, dear, <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Yeah, it's quite quite familiar. It's, just, <laughs> yeah. it's what happens when we're all out in the studio together. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It all shifts up. Um, good to see you in the studio. It, it still does have a sense of novelty about it. I know this is our third, I think, where the three of us have been back. Yeah. But, um, I'm normally set up in my in my front room trying to block out all the sound from the street and <laughs> using a terrible microphone. This is luxury. What's uh, what's the latest from the front line, guys? After you, Dr. Neo. Oh, look, not much. Um, work as usual. Uh, everyone Everyone's busy at the moment. Everyone's... Yeah. It seems like everyone is sick at the moment as well. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone's always a bit understaffed. Everyone's tired. Everyone's sick. It just seems like all the uh, the... The colds that we've managed to avoid for the past year and a half have uh, gone crazy over the past few weeks. My, um, my, uh, what, what would you call it? My metric on on public health in that respect, you know, everybody's sick respect, is um, student attendance and requests for extension on assignments <laughs> ah, yes. and the grounds for which they ask them. And um, yeah, there's there's something going on. Yeah. Look, I've certainly had a few requests uh, for uh, medical exemption for extensions, <laughs> yes, uh, in my general practice. So I say uh, your measures and my measures are lining up. You're getting um, like med certificates. Oh, uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, medical yeah. certificates. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, the, the COVID will have eliminated. The, the virus is gone, but at the lack of social distancing, well, you're going to see all the other illnesses, gastro and mm. rhinoviruses, etc. And it was interesting with gastro where I think a lot of people had gone from washing their hands with soap and water to washing their hands with hand sanitizer. And that's exactly what uh, some of the gastro bugs love because they just, they're not broken down by hand sanitizer and only broken down by soap and water. That's right. So when you have like a norovirus outbreak, you, you mm. just need to go to town to clean absolutely everything to, to burst those, <laughs> uh, to, to destroy those viruses. Without it, uh, no chance. Hey, we've got a cracker of a show. But, oh, uh, oh, you know, as if we don't. <laughs> if, if it's just, we've just got this endless streak of just banger after banger. Um, Today's no exception. We've got, we've got a great guest on today. Yeah. Working backwards uh, in terms of the scheme of things, we're going to uh, end up uh, having a bit of a chat about what's going down in India, aren't we? That's right. It's, uh, I mean, it's difficult to ignore what's going on. There's a very, uh, I suppose, salient Australian connection uh, yeah. that we have because of you know, everything with the border bans, etc. And yeah. I think specifically for Victoria, I think probably the largest migrant population we've had in the last decade has been people from India. So yeah. Yeah. You know, it's hard to, hard to see or find someone Indian in Victoria who has not been affected in terms of their family. Uh, That's back, right. Back yep. in India from COVID. Yeah, and, and I think just in the last you know, two or three days, we had uh, some people test negative, then positive, then negative, or mixed reports about getting on the plane and coming back. And, yeah, we'll and all unpack that. all of that. Yeah, we I, will. I was just reading about it in the news today. It's really shocking stuff. Really? Total mess. Total, total mess. mess. Um, but our special guest, Dr. Sharma. Yes, uh, we will be very shortly joined by Dr. Stephen Duckett of the Grattan Institute uh, because we will be discussing all things budget, health budget, mm. that is. Health budget. And no shortage there. I mean, some big dollars being splashed around. 
huge, enormous sums. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I think it's going to be uh, interesting to, to get Stephen's thoughts on you know, if this is enough. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think I kind of know what the answer to that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also I'm interested to hear his thoughts on not just a matter of dollars, but how we are actually spending that dollar. Yeah, you know, are we getting value for money? The distribution, absolutely. Really looking forward to it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. This week, the federal budget was unveiled and it divided us, as it always does, into winners and losers, crudely. But with the health budget, I think that's a little bit uh, more difficult of a distinction to make because it has been boosted by several, several billion dollars. But as always, the devil's in the detail. And to help us pass these details, we are joined by uh, Professor uh, Dr. Stephen Duckett, a health economist and director of the health program at the Grattan Institute. Now, Stephen will be well known to a lot of our listeners. He's led several evidence-based innovations and reforms in areas ranging from introduction of activities-based funding for hospitals and systems of accountability for safety of hospital care. So, Stephen, uh, have we got you on the line? You've got me on the line. Thanks very much. Excellent. We are so pleased to, to have you here. Now, Stephen, before we dip into the specifics of policies of you know, the big, big key area expenditures of COVID and aged care and mental health, um, I was wondering if we could just start with a, your big picture view. You know, what was your, what is a feeling you got out of this budget? Did it fill you with optimism? Did it satisfy you? Or was it enough? Bit of a loaded question, I know. Yeah. So uh, the answer is all of the above. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, the, the first thing is when you hear these huge numbers, $18 billion uh, to be invested in aged care, for example, you've got to remember that there's the, the politician's trick that they multiply the real amount of money being spent by some factor. And uh, so it sounds even bigger. Uh, so in reality, when the government says $18 billion is spent on aged care, what they really mean is there's 5.5 billion a year being spent on aged care? It's still a huge sum of money, but it's 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 not quite the not not quite the same. That's the first point. The second point is, as you said correctly, the devil is in the detail, and for some of these things, we actually don't know what's going to happen because we don't know, for example, what a new aged care act is going to look like, what a new deal between the states and the Commonwealth on mental health would look like. So we, we don't know actually what's going to happen. And thirdly, of course, uh, it, it's, it's never going to be enough for, because the backlog in both aged care and mental health is so huge that uh, it, it was always going to be disappointing, I think. Now, uh, interesting. Yeah. You, sorry, interesting. You mentioned backlog because that's one of the things that the government's uh, saying they're committed to clearing. Which is, you know, if you if someone's got aged care needs, you are and you want to be given some care at home, you're allocated in theory these these packages. But the wait list for these packages is just absolutely enormous. This backlog. So, you know, the, the kind of spending that they are promising is is it look like looking like it's going to clear this backlog? So the, the backlog at the moment is more than 100,000 people. Uh, they actually allocated 80,000 packages. And one of the problems with what they've done in the past on allocating packages is they've allocated level one and two packages, which are generally not enough for most people, rather than level three and four. Now, they've been better this time, although they actually hasn't 
haven't published in the budget how many level four, how many level three, and so on. But so there's usually an under... They allocate a package, but it's usually not enough. So not only do we have not enough packages, 100,000 on waiting list, 80,000 uh, packages, but they're probably not going to be the right sort of packages. Stephen Duckett, it's panel Peter here. Uh, could you just um, talk us through the differentiation between those levels for our listeners, please? Yeah, so... Um, there, there are three aged care support programs. One is called the Commonwealth Home Support Program, and that's for meals, you know, meals and cleaning and, and gardening and those sorts of things. Then there's the next level is called the home care packages, and they come in four, four levels. Um, level one, I think, is about 9,000 of support a year up to level four, which is about 50,000 of support a year. And then you can get residential aged care. What the Royal Commission on Aged Care says is we should have one continuous program that, that, that scopes in all of those three. What the Commonwealth Government said in the budget was the first two, the two home-based programs, will be merged together um, and we're, we're probably going to try and have a, an integrated assessment program for all of them. But, uh, again, we've got to see what that actually means. So are we, are we basically saying that on the back of the Royal Commission where, um, you know, so much was found to be lacking, um, the money that we're now reading about, hearing about uh, for this coming out of this budget is really still in catch-up mode? We, we, we haven't jumped ahead at all? That's exactly right. So um, the Royal Commission said there was a $10 billion shortfall. We at Grattan said it's somewhere between $7 billion and $10 billion a year. Mm-hmm. Um, what the Commonwealth put in in the budget was $5.5 billion a year, about half of that, 2.5 or so resi care and 2.5 or so home care, uh, and that is not enough by anybody's assessment. Stephen, one of the things that's fascinated me about the way that we've spent the money in aged care in this budget is a lot of it is tied up for specific purposes. So, you know, X amount of money is supposed to go to packages, Y amount of money is supposed to go for for, for training and workforce. But then there's also this basic daily fee, uh, and that's been increased per kind of resident in aged care facilities by $10 a day. And it really kind of got me thinking that it just seems to be this kind of blanket fee that's going to all providers for, for all aged care residents. Is the sector really struggling that much? Like, are, are we, you know, is it really the case that they genuinely need more money or all these operators or is it just some who are struggling? And yeah, I'm just trying to gauge your thoughts yeah. as an economist about how efficient this is. So, so the Royal Commission recommended that $10 uplift. Um, there are lots of other things that uh, were recommended as well, like more minutes of care. Um, the government put in uh, a requirement of 200 minutes and the Royal Commission wanted that to be a bit higher. Um, they, and so um, the, the issue is we really don't know enough about how aged care providers are spending their money. So what we know, in the olden days, before the current Aged Care Act, before 1997... The, the funding was split into care funding and support funding like meals and cleaning and paying for the building and so on uh, for residential aged care. And you couldn't move money from care funding into your profits, that the care funding was for care funding. Now, that was abolished, and that what happened was providers were awarded for skimping on care. They could move money out of care money into their profits or into leasing and so on. And this was for both not-for-profits and for-profits, incidentally. Uh, so 
putting an extra 10 bucks per day in for the good providers is going to be really good. They can actually increase the quality of care they're providing, but for the unscrupulous providers, there's no accountability. So what we... And we won't know whether accountability is going to be increased until we see the detail of the new Aged Care Act. So... Essentially, there's no regulations to stop providers putting that $10 a day directly into the pockets of... I, I can buy a, an even bigger Maserati and pay off with another $10 a day. Good God. You're alluding to that uh, the mixed market. You know, we've got the, the not-for-profit and the for-profit. What, what, what is revealing in that distinction um, as far as the budget response is concerned? Um, well, the evidence of... I want to make clear that you can have some really good for-profit providers and some really poor not-for-profit providers. I might declare an interest I'm on the board of a not-for-profit provider, the Brotherhood of St Lawrence. So, you know, I don't want to say for-profit bad, not-for-profit good or vice versa. But what we really need is absolute transparency, absolute clarity on if the money is going to be paid for care, it actually has to go for care rather than being siphoned away into something else. And also, we need, and the government has done this in the budget, said that in a couple of years' time, you'll be able to look up on a website how many minutes of care the, uh, is being provided in that, in, in that nursing home. There's going to be a so-called star rating system. But, and Stephen, look, I think that there's a really strong case for all of that. But I guess my concern is also that for some of the standards that are breached, that are transgressed, which we do, I suppose, have transparency over, yet we've still seen the regulator be quite soft in terms of, of sanctions and, uh, and just the, the, the stringency with which they've gone to the extent of actually inspecting these HK homes and then the measures they've kind of imposed against them. So I think you know, to this end, we've also heard that uh, a couple, I think, a couple of hundred million dollars is being uh, invested uh, further into the regulator, into the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission. Yeah. Do, yeah. So, what do you think? Is is that what the issue is there? Do, do, are we likely to see better functioning with this money, or do we need a new instrument? Well, the royal the royal commission said the uh, the the commission, the regulator, had totally and completely failed, and we should throw it out and start again. Um, so, I, I'm not sure that investing more money is the right thing to do, and. The, the other point I'd make is this. The regulator has a set of standards which are called outcome standards and they are just so waffly <laughs> that it is often sometimes hard to hold people to account and to actually say, these are the standards we expect. So I think we've got to... Uh, and, you know, we've got to go to a totally different system. I, what I believe is that you've got to have be much closer geographically to these nursing homes so you can pop in quickly so you can actually see them, so you can actually assess them regularly with visits and so on. And so at the moment, we've got a, a very remote regulator where all the decisions are taken in Canberra, and I just don't think that's the right model. I think it might be assessing, uh, alluding to the fact that a lot of these uh, quote-unquote inspections were literally done by phone call a lot of the time to see if their um, uh, infection prevention control was up to scratch. And you've also got a, 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 a tick box where you just have to tick this, tick that, tick the other, and it just doesn't give you a good feel for what the, the, the service is really, really like. Uh, Stephen, I'd like to turn um, some attention towards a few of the points that the, the government didn't accept on, from the Royal Commission. So, for example, the government said that it would only give further consideration to a recommendation for mandatory minimum qualifications for personal care workers. So, basically, that means that uh, 
a lot of our carers in aged care facilities don't even have a certificate three, which is a six-month qualification. Why? Like, what's the reasoning behind this? Like, I can't. I struggle to understand why they would allow such unskilled workers to look after such a vulnerable population. So I'm with you. The um, the the level of complexity of people in resi care has increased dramatically over the last decade, and we should actually be expecting that everybody in resi care, all the staff in resi care, have a certificate three. Uh, at, at the moment, about seventy percent do, but we should be saying this is a requirement that you may not necessarily have at the day you start, but within six months of employment or something, your employer helps you upgrade so you've actually got this qualification. Now, to give the government their due, oh, they, and then they said, OK, what we're going to do, rather than saying everybody has to have it and have a minimum standard, what they said is we're going to provide once-off 30,000 places to, to upskill people. Well, that's, you know really one of the most stupid policies is as if they, they assume that, that no one is ever going to leave and, and you know, you, you don't have to think about the pipeline. But, you know, but they got some good publicity about that as part of their workforce strategy. So I think the government didn't go with a compulsory one because they, they couldn't get their head around the idea that um, you could actually phase this in and to, to say you don't have to... Because I think they were worried that if you set a Cert three then people couldn't get jobs and so on. But, I mean, I think there are ways around that. Hmm. Now, just to switch track to another aspect of the health budget, a uh, fair bit of spending uh, on mental health and suicide prevention expenditures. Um, so in terms of suicide, there's, uh, there's a lot of um, expenditures on crisis care and especially aftercare, which you know, we'd love to see, I think, as a general practitioner myself, uh, but also a lot of funding towards these new adult mental health centres, which uh, is... I think essentially to increase access for people to psychologists, but there's no kind of psychiatrist overview there. I'm just wondering, firstly, overall, any thoughts on the mental health expenditure in this budget? So again, there, it's about a billion extra a year uh, when fully implemented, and there's 30-something separate initiatives. So it's a pretty scattergun approach, and also this is one of the ones where they said we've got to talk to the states as well. But if I take that adult mental health initiative, the, the so-called Head to Health, um, one, one of the, the problems with that is it, it's a disintegrated approach. You know, what you really want to do is make sure that whatever the Commonwealth does and whatever the state does is, and whatever is happening in private practice, it all works seamlessly together. And I think just helicoptering in eight Head to Health centres really... Doesn't uh, doesn't sound like an integrated solution, or indeed a systematic solution uh, to these problems. Uh, Stephen, um, one of the things that caught my eye about the mental health package was something conspicuous by its absence, and that was um, addressing the the cost and the Medicare rebate aspect of things. Um, after the rebate, uh, I think it's generally around about a hundred bucks for a session, and um, that hasn't been addressed. Did that catch your eye? Yeah, well, the whole issue of, of how all of these initiatives work with, with MBS funding is was completely and utterly ignored. Uh, so you've got problems of all kinds. That is, we know there's excessive and spending on, on some aspects of fee-for-service. Um, you've got evidence now that this um, better outcomes, better access program 
uh, is ha- drove increases in out-of-pockets. The, the psychologists just put up their fees. Uh, so we, we really should be stepping back and say, look, we've got a whole budget envelope here. When we throw in what the Commonwealth is doing, what the state is doing, what the MBS is doing, that we ought to be stepping back and saying, how do we get the best value for money? How do we get the best access? How do we ensure people can get the care they need when they need it? And at the moment, you've got waiting times and, and, and I think, uh, money that's poorly invested. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I know anecdotally, uh, in my circle, somebody was... Uh um, sorting out a, a mental health care plan recently and they had had one in the past wanted to go back to the same um, psychologist that they had seen about 12 months prior and um, just two or three weeks ago they were told they weren't going to be able to get a appointment until August and that kind of seems very revealing about where things are at. And this is a private psychologist I mean it's not it's you know it, it's not so-called public sector problems that we're dealing with here. Absolutely. Uh, look, Stephen, um, the other kind of uh, thought I had was uh, actually just talking more broadly about this issue of, I suppose, a rebate, just kind of pushing this kind of price up. We've seen similar things in NDIS, uh, obviously seeing it with kind of private psychology as well. In terms of aged care, uh, are there any measures the government's looking at or should look at to you know, effectively have some kind of price control or price advice like how do we know this extra money is not just going to lead them to saying oh well there's increased demands we need to kind of raise our prices up more what are the leaves available there and this is a big issue because the home care packages are a complete rort because they the the providers uh take sometimes 30 percent off the top for inverted commas the management fee sometimes the management fee is twice or three times what the cost of the services is and so you know, we're investing a whole lot of money in a completely and utterly broken system. Now, I would want to put in, say, 40,000 places into this broken system, but you've got to move very quickly to get much better accountability and, and much better standards and saying, look, you know, you're not going to be allowed to have 35% management fees. You're not going to be allowed to have outrageous uh, flagfalls when people aren't using much of a service. So we've got to actually totally redesign the aged care system and there's no sign that the government was uh, was up for that in the budget. Stephen, you've been really generous with your time and we'll let you go very, very shortly, but we probably can't um, finish up without just getting some some of your thoughts about where COVID itself fits in all of this. And, um, you know, we were perhaps looking for some, you know, detail about the vaccine rollout and even vaccine development here in a, in Australia. That that detail seems to be lacking. Yeah, so basically the... The, uh, the vaccine rollout has been a complete and utter train wreck on every dimension you could possibly possibly imagine. Uh, there's, there's probably nothing that has gone wrong, gone right with it. Um, and, you know, there's anecdote after anecdote that I could, I could recount. But what we really need to do is for the government to actually start disclosing, start being transparent, how many doses are being produced by CSL, how many doses are coming into the country, Pfizer doses, Uh, and so on, how many coming into the country. So we know what the performance of the vaccine rollout is because, critically, we've we've got to get a very large proportion of the population vaccinated so we can start opening the borders uh, to restore the economy in terms of uh, international students, international tourists and the hospitality sector.
Touching on some of those same themes we were talking about with aged care, uh, without that transparency, uh, it's very difficult to have any kind of accountability and some, some progress. Uh, we are so lucky to be joined by you, uh, Dr. Stephen Duckett. Thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks very much. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Stephen Duckett, uh, talking us through the, uh, the budget that came down uh, in Australia on Tuesday. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Dr. Sharma, Dr. Neo, India's going a little bit uh, nuts with uh, with COVID at the moment. It has been in a, in a number of different ways. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, quite right. And we'll cover all the different ways. There's nuance to that word that you've just used. Uh, and it's been going on for, for, for quite some time now. Um, this surge is just absolutely sustained. And I think even when uh, the world was, was woken up to this um, uh, roughly, what, three, four weeks ago now, it was obvious that it's going to rage on for quite some time. Uh, the... the the kind of effect that we might expect to see in an Australian surge uh, with a bit of social distancing, mm. etc., uh, those timeframes just don't apply when the, the numbers of COVID cases are actually at least three to four times worse than what official uh, numbers can possibly show. So. so let's just set the scene. So as I not terribly flippantly said, world's largest democracy, and I think this matters. So we're not talking about an authoritarian state and what that might mean for a public health response. There's there's that to factor in. We're talking about um, a massive population. Um, we're talking about a an environment um, with lots of movement between rural and regional and urban centres, lots of human mobility going on um, just in the due course of life. Um, and, of course, we're dealing with a whole range of socioeconomic factors. Um, we've got um, class, we've got religion, we've got um, ethnic tensions, um, and we've got a government that is nationalist populist, and that tells us a lot, right? All those things factor in, and you know a lot of the factors you've mentioned are, I suppose we could say, difficult to change at short notice. Sure, yeah, uh, <laughs> and yet, and yet, uh, I think the the real crux of, of the issue is some of them are not um, deciding uh, which government to elect, and the individual decisions of uh, specific politicians. Those are decisions that are binary and that can be mm. taken at any given point. So, you know, I, I think stepping back and looking at what's happened to India, um, well, every you know, country in the world almost has had some kind of a surge. So it's not to say that we expect perfection in this incredibly large country that's encumbered by its own socioeconomic bureaucratic issues, but that doesn't mean that there weren't uh, better decisions that could have been made that could have blunted the effect of the surge, perhaps even prevented the surge in the first place. So I guess what... Uh is at the forefront of my mind is why now? Like why, you know, 18 months into this pandemic is India experiencing such a massive surge when at a time when other countries who have, have had difficulties with the pandemic, such as the United States, are getting on top of things? So to me, there's a couple of factors to consider. Actually, the, the third factor to consider is we, we actually don't 
No, for sure. So there is a bit of uncertainty epidemiologically. But the two biggest factors are uh, India uh, imposed one of the earliest and harshest lockdowns of 2020. And it was absolutely brutal. A lot of people suffered, but there's no doubt that prevented the the surge of COVID-19 in India for the first two-thirds of 2020. Uh, the other factor that I think people forget a lot of the time is India is an incredibly young nation. So we know that COVID-19, the, one of the biggest ways it discriminates is actually by age. So for every decade that, uh, that the population is older, uh, the, the mortality rates are, you know, about roughly speaking, kind of 10 times higher. So the average, the median age of an Indian person is about something about 27. For Australians, it's 37. In Italy, it's 47. So we can expect totally different patterns of uh, hospitalisation, etc. But once, when you've got a critical mass of people who are sick, and with those uh, issues that Panel B is talking about, just the, the kind of issues in terms of social mobility and infrastructure, when it's going to spread, it's going to spread. Um, so India came out of its lockdown in 2020, but I, I think the reason why we're really seeing surge now, I would argue from what I've spoken to, to relatives there, my family's been affected and reading the news, uh, incredible political hubris in, in October. This idea that I'm quoting that India has defeated COVID-19 mm. to the extent where kind of, there's kind of hubris looking at Europe going, we should have done kind of what we've done. Complete destruction of the concept of social distancing and actually encouraging people to congregate in the early months of 2021, uh, and this disease spreads. And I guess what like you with a personal connection um, to the country could inform our listeners of is just what the realities of this is for the the everyday person. Yeah. So, well, I'll put it this way: I don't think this is a single. Per- person of Indian extraction you could find in Melbourne who doesn't have a family member back in India who isn't affected. So you can imagine what the situation is like in India right now. Um, So uh, certainly uh, there were cases of oxygen literally running out and people dying. Uh, not just one or two people. You know, you'll just hear of a cluster of you know, twenty deaths in this hospital because there was just no more oxygen left, and so inevitably it means hundreds of hundreds, probably thousands of people really have been affected by this. But it's just difficult to get a hospital bed. That's mm-hmm. another issue. It's impossible for people to uh, to, to do a kind of self-imposed lockdown because you still have to attend work. These are the economic realities uh, of India. The only people who can afford uh, to to shelter at home uh, are people who have the money and the means, um, but you know, mobility is a, is a big issue in India. Lots of people live with their families, large families, uh, and you have a lot of workers coming in and out of the home. Um, and a lot of those those workers, um, there's there's just no chance of them it's kind of. Uh, social distancing and and stopping work. So what that means is even for families who are so-called sheltering and social distancing, there's still someone coming in and out of the home every day Mm -hmm. who's uh, essentially kind of a vector for this virus. Um, So the only real solution now is (laughs) waiting for the government, I think, to to promote a bigger message of of, of sheltering at home and vaccination. Uh, But until then, it's just a bit of an inevitability I think people have Mm -hmm. just kind of accepted right now. And it's just... Just crazy, like I, as an Australian doctor, and the idea of a hospital running out of oxygen—it's not only something I never thought could happen here. It's just something I I have never thought about. Like it's genuinely so foreign to me that you could run out of oxygen 
Isn't it funny? We were talking about, oh, you've got to have your, your medications and dexamethasone, remdesivir and ventilators, but the thing to put into the ventilator... Oh, you're right. I never thought about it as a medication. And I think oxygen really sums up one of the tragedies of the Indian response where uh, actually quite early on in India, it was... Uh, this was raised as an issue in India that we need more oxygen plants that will need about 150 extra ones. Uh, and this was raised very early in 2020. By the time this second surge happened, only five were operational. Mm. Now, on one hand, you could argue, well, you know, India's got its economic challenges and, you know, not everything is possible in the first world countries is possible there. It's not just that. The tender to build these uh, oxygen plants was only put out by the government in October after it was raised all the way back in February and March. So, on, yes, there are some difficult realities of, uh, of, of delivering high-quality healthcare in a country like India, but so much of this just t- comes down to uh, a leadership failure. There's um, I, I, an article in the uh, BMJ uh, caught my uh, – not a, not a peer review article, um, one of just their website articles – was taking a look at what was going on, and, and the authors of that article were pointing to two really curious – um, paradoxes. One of them relates to the way that the general public is um, relating to access to medicines and doctor's prescriptions and stuff that is associated with uh, regulation. I'll come to more detail in a second. And the second paradox was the fact that there are, unlike we're just talking about with Stephen, where in Australia we aren't producing vaccines, there are actually seven, you know, mega pharma. I mean, India is a massive pharmacological um, supplier um, to the world. There are seven uh, producing vaccines and producing um, pharmaceuticals that are relevant to treatment. Um, And that is not getting into circulation in mm. to the extent that it you know you would expect it to when it's so local, um, and that points to something that could only be explained by political. Well, what would be the generous term? Um, um, negligence. <laughs> negligence. Negligence would be would be generous even. I mean, it's you know it's a, a lot of the issues with vaccines. Um, was that well, obviously not a production thing, but just the way that some of these deals were done. So I think even in early January, the Serum Institute of India, which is the biggest producer, was actually asking for some funding from the federal government. They just need the capital to obtain the rural resources. Uh, and that was kind of not granted at the time. Um, it's only really when the, sec- the, the surge really started going uh, that that money was, was allocated very late. But you had this bizarre point, I think, in the pandemic where the CEO of the Serum Institute of India, this massive vaccine producer, tweeted out to Joe Biden asking for the release of several raw materials that were embargoed by them. Now, that's you know, that was a bit of a contentious issue. You say you know, having those embargoes and the rural products, and that was reversed. But it was just curious to me that the CEO had to resort to tweeting out the president directly. And that tells me that the back channels were not working mm. well, that... The, the farm company did not have confidence in the Indian administration to do the kind of hard work to help make these things happen. So, you know, for, for a country who's producing a heck of a lot of vaccines, there were a lot of issues in terms of price control and, and allocations and deals and, and raw materials being produced. And it really does just come down to the, the, the political will and leadership and level that uh, which leaders were wishing to be involved, which was really not very much. On, on the point of vaccines, now, you know, India is known for producing a lot of pharmaceutical goods and for producing vaccines. Are the vac- are vaccines available to the general public? Are they available to healthcare workers? 
or is it simply that they are available, but the the vaccine hesitancy in the country is high? Like, what's the story behind why this country isn't getting vaccinated? So, look, that's a really good question, uh, and there's you know there's a bit of everything you've kind of mentioned. So, firstly, there has there is a cost uh, attached to, to vaccines. I'm sure there are some pro- free programs out there, but in terms of my family members who got a vaccine in India, they certainly had to pay for it. And again, you know, if you're middle class, it's not expensive, but most of India is not middle class, and it is very expensive um, uh, for them. And especially when you're a young worker, you don't immediately see the, what the benefit of the vaccine is going to be. I've had COVID. It wasn't too severe. You'd think to yourself, well, what would be the point of my family getting it? So, so there's a lot of that issue going on. There, there's been distribution issues as well. Uh, certain states getting you know, less than other states. Certain states with vaccines sitting in their fridges. Now, the, what I find fascinating about this is that if I just didn't use the word India there you would yeah. think we were talking about actually potentially any country. Mm. It's just that what we're seeing is that it's magnified because it is, as mm. Panel Beta said, the largest democracy in the world. It's just every f- problem we're familiar with you know, times 10. Yeah. Um, that We're just starting to allude to the politics of the matter. Perhaps uh, it's now timely to address some of the misinformation that politicians themselves are putting out there. So in the scenarios that we've been describing, we might reasonably expect um, politicians to try and bring in a calming influence, you know, and the equivalence of the chief medical officers bring in a calming influence. That's not what's happening, though, is it, Dr Sharma? Well, this is why, Panel Beta, when moments ago you said uh, the word negligence and you said perhaps too generous, it is too generous. Um, I mean, it's just almost psychopathic. Yeah. So some of the advice we're seeing come out. So the, the Indian health minister, you know, I've, I've seen these tweets, is just tweeting out you know, um, immune-boosting diets for people who've got COVID-19. Um, you've had people very high up in the Indian administration who are you know, telling people, uh, this is about roughly one and a half months ago, not to be crybabies uh, about the, the situation. And you know, one of the, the, the things that we've seen under this particular federal government in, in India, um, they're, they're quite nationalistic. And so they've really platformed this concept of complementary and alternative medicines through this ministry uh, called Ayush, A-Y-U-S-H. And it's this... The, the the kind of idea behind this ministry is to kind of further enunciate the effects of yoga, Ayurveda, homeopathy and all these other kind of traditional medicines. And proponents of this have been making some you know, really awful statements about how you can prevent COVID-19 through these. You've had government ministers amplifying these messages Um to, to do that, you know, before the surge could be put down to just incompetence and lack of knowledge, but to do that during the surge, uh, I mean, it, it almost really feels like a bit of kind of political misdirection. Just that classic thing you see of, uh, I suppose, when there's a crisis that you see bad leaders shovel the responsibility and onus onto the individual. Well, this is what you should be eating, not mm. this is what, hmm. we, we, uh, what we should be doing. And simultaneously not mentioning masks. There's still no consistent masking uh, kind of messaging and, and, and policy in India. So it, it's been genuine. Like negligent is really is too, is too generous. Um, these people do know better. You know, the health minister of India is, a, you know, is kind of doctor himself and to see, see just the amplification of just nonsense uh, diet cures, um, you know, just speechless. We've um, we've noted that um, uh, Narendra Modi is a nationalist and a populist and... Um you know, uh, for people less familiar with Indian politics, you know, you could put him in the same 
you know, with some notable differences, but nevertheless, very Trumpian, um, very very similar to our mate over in Brazil. Um, the, why, what do you reckon, and you've got the closest proximity, Dr. Sharma, what do you reckon explains why he's not intervening, being more interventionist in the stuff that other politicians are saying? Look... The truth is, I don't have enough knowledge of of Indian domestic politics. Um, but you know, all I can say is, yeah, you know, I I can't speak to his motivations. You know, I, I really can't. And you know, to a certain extent, I almost kind of don't care. I'm sure there is a very charitable interpretation mm. that just relies on, oh, you know, the fact that he's, you know, just not. Um, just just did not know and and couldn't predict. But I think the least charitable interpretation is certainly that you know, at the Nothing. He will say nothing to sacrifice the the concept of kind of political unity, and so much of his political rhetoric is all just around downplaying anything bad that's going on mm. and look to the future. It's all going great. Yeah. It's going to be even better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I'll have a crack. I I, I suspect he, most obviously he just sees that there's um, uh, electoral capital to be gained by the situation and by by letting the can chaos and confusion occur at you know second tier politics um, below him? He can be seen to be above it, and so he's not feeling the the electoral impact immediately. And when the time comes, and I suspect it will come, he can come in riding the white horse mm. with with some sort of co- coordinated effort when it suits him. And if we'd been having this conversation two or three years ago, I would have been I would have been in shock. But this is almost. This story is exactly the same one that we saw pre-US election last year, Mm. where I thought that the American populace would would have more insight into their current situation where uh, Trump has been actively negligent in, in dictating how this pandemic is controlled, but... He still still managed to get nearly fifty percent of the popular vote. Yeah, it takes us back to our conversation with Bill Bowtell uh, two months ago, and um, where he was talking about COVID and the and the and, and any of the scenarios that we've just discussed, whether it be in India or closer to home, as as being very political. And anyone who missed that chat with um, Bill Bowtell, you. I gently reminded you can go back on uh, to the Triple R website rr.org.au and listen on demand or check it out on the podcast. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. With scientists in mind and um, my passing interest in a little bit uh, of psychology and expertise, something caught my eye. And before I go directly there, I'm going to put it to you guys, Dr. Neo and Dr. Sharma. If by word association, if I say to you, um, expert, what type of character do you think uh, this person is? Look, just from... From my own personal experience, it's more I, I uh, not not per, not personally as an expert, personally as in the people that I've that have uh, I've been lucky enough to interact with. It's uh, generally like you know type A personalities who are 
who are quite quite focused on their mm. their areas of interest and love what they do. Yeah, yeah. Similar to you, Dr. Sharma? Oh, yeah. Look, I can't avail myself of all the stereotypes we've all grown up with, just uh, books, glasses, introverted, head down, reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and and uh, me too, until just this week, I was casually reading um, some uh, research that has been done on experts and in particular Nobel laureates. A couple of researchers at Michigan State University um, delivered a lecture called The Value of Training as a Polymath for Stimulating Creative Insights Across Disciplines. So their motivation was to say that if you've got um, single-minded tendencies for your expertise, that that's not going to bring out the best in you and what you're, what's possible. They actually said, you know, um, they were theorising and then the research later confirmed that um, – the broader your interests, the more like the 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 more productive you're going to be, the more diverse your um, work will be, and um, and indeed the better the quality of work. And they were able to prove it. They went and looked at um, some significant longitudinal research done on Nobel laureates over a long period of time, and they they mapped the publication record of Nobel laureates and found that no Nobel laureate. Um, only published in their own discipline. That's not terribly surprising, you know. Um, you know, once you've got to that stage, you probably are dipping your toe in a few things. But they weren't just dipping their toe. They found that Nobel laureates were twice as likely as non-Nobel winning um, uh, winners um, compared to just, you know, Joe Average Expert. Um, twice as likely to be publishing in twice as many different disciplines. And then they found that those just run-of-the-mill experts, the non-Nobel Prize winners, were twice as likely as any other, um, you know, uh, mid-career or not fully achieving uh, academic in their disciplines. And they were therefore ready to make the conclusion that it was the diversity that created the quality of the expertise, not the single-mindedness that created the... uh, the quality of the expertise. And the way I'm reading this for us who don't have a Nobel Prize uh, is that a bit of work-life balance is quite, is quite healthy, quite good. Yeah, it, it seems that way. It seems that way. Um, so, look, take that away for you and, uh, and you know, yeah, yeah, you read into it what you will. Um, dear listeners, we've got to wrap this up. It's been wonderful having you with us. We want to thank our very special guest, uh, Stephen Duckett, who was talking to us um, about the uh, the federal budget. Um, and you can um, certainly, if you just came in a bit late to the show, definitely go back and, as I said a moment ago, go back and listen on demand or via the podcast. Um, you might like to check us out on our social media. We're on um, Twitter, we're on Instagram, and we're on Facebook. And we really do welcome uh, your comments and uh, questions and suggestions for all sorts of things about the show. Really want to uh, thank uh, the sponsors coming back on board. We had uh, a full list of sponsors um, again this week, and it really is fabulous that the the sense of community coming back together again and, um, you know, as as regular listeners will know, most of our sponsorships are around events and um, local businesses, and this is a fabulous sign. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.